0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 309, Channing's Unitarian Christianity, Part 2. In this episode, you'll hear the last part of the famous sermon by William Ellery Channing at the ordination service for Jared Sparks. By the way, Jared Sparks is a really fascinating early American Unitarian in his own right. He only served as pastor for this first independent church of Baltimore for about four years, and he went on to a distinguished career as a historian, being a professor at Harvard, and eventually ending up as the president of Harvard. He published important books on George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin, and other early American figures. But back to Channing, in this final portion of his sermon lecture he lodges some objections to Calvinistic theology, hitting them on the goodness of God and on their fatalism. And when Channing here mentions the prevailing system of religion or the common system of theology or when he talks about orthodoxy, you have to remember the long history of Calvinism in New England. That's what he primarily has in mind, Reformed Christianity. When he says Orthodoxy, he doesn't mean Eastern Orthodoxy. He also has a short discussion of clashing views on atonement and religious experience, and he objects to what we could call revivalism or emotionalism in religion. Here then is the last portion of this important historical sermon, again lightly modernized with a view towards being understood by the 21st century listener. Having thus given our beliefs on two great points, namely that there is one God and that Jesus Christ is a being distinct from and inferior to God, I now proceed to another point on which we lay even greater stress. We believe in the moral perfection of God. We consider no part of theology so important as that which treats of God's moral character and we value our views of Christianity chiefly as they assert his amiable and venerable attributes. It may be said that, in regard to this subject, all Christians agree that they all ascribe to the supreme being infinite justice, goodness, and holiness. We reply that it is very possible to speak of God magnificently and to think of him in a lowly manner to apply to his person high-sounding language and to his government principles which make him repulsive. The heathens called their god Jupiter the greatest and the best, but his mythology was besmirched with cruelty and lust. We cannot judge of people's real ideas of God by their general language, for in all ages they've hoped to soothe the deity by adulation. We must inquire into their exact views of his purposes, of the principles of his administration, and of his disposition towards his creatures. We think that Christians have generally leaned towards a very injurious view of the supreme being. They have too often felt as if he were raised by his greatness and sovereignty above the principles of morality, above those eternal laws of justice and righteousness to which all other beings are subjected we believe that in no being is the sense of right so strong so omnipotent as in god we believe that his almighty power is entirely submitted to his perceptions of righteousness and this is the ground of our piety it is not because he is our creator merely but because He created us for good and holy purposes. It is not because His will is irresistible, but because His will is the perfection of virtue that we pay Him allegiance. We cannot bow before a king, however great and powerful, who governs tyrannically. We respect nothing but excellence, whether on earth or in heaven. We venerate not the loftiness of God's throne, but the justice and goodness in which it is established. We believe that God is infinitely good, kind, and benevolent in the proper sense of these words, good in disposition as well as in act, good not to a few, but to all, good to every individual as well as to the general system. We believe, too, that God is just, but we never forget that His justice is the justice of a good being dwelling in the same mind and acting in harmony with perfect benevolence. By this attribute we understand God's infinite regard to virtue or moral worth expressed in a moral government, that is, in giving excellent and equitable laws and in conferring such rewards and inflicting such punishments as are best fitted to secure their observance. God's justice has for its aim the highest virtue of the creation, and it punishes for this purpose alone, and thus it coincides with benevolence. For virtue and happiness, though not the same, are inseparably conjoined. God's justice, thus viewed, appears to us to be in perfect harmony with His mercy. According to the prevalent systems of theology, these attributes are so discordant and jarring that to reconcile them is the hardest task and the most wonderful achievement of infinite wisdom. To us, they seem to be intimate friends, always at peace, breathing the same spirit and seeking the same goal. By God's mercy, we understand not a blind instinctive compassion which forgives without reflection and without regard to the interests of virtue. This, we acknowledge, would be incompatible with justice and also with enlightened benevolence. God's mercy, as we understand it, desires strongly the happiness of the guilty, but only through their penitence. It has a concern for character as truly as his justice. It defers punishment and is very patient so that the sinner may return to his duty, but leaves the impenitent and unyielding to the fearful retribution threatened in God's word. To give our views of God in one word, we believe in his parental character. We ascribe to him not only the name, but the dispositions and principles of a father. We believe that he has a father's concern for his creatures, a father's desire for their improvement, a father's justice in proportioning his commands to their powers, a father's joy in their progress, a father's readiness to receive the penitent, and a father's justice for the incorrigible. We look upon this world as a place of education in which he is training us by prosperity and adversity, by aids and obstructions, by conflicts of reason and passion, by motives to duty and temptations to sin, by a various discipline suited to free and moral beings for union with himself, and for a sublime and ever-growing virtue in heaven." Now we object to the systems of religion which prevail among us, that they are adverse, in a greater or lesser degree, to these purifying, comforting, and honorable views of God, that they take from us our Father in heaven and substitute for him a being whom we couldn't love if we wanted to, and whom we ought not love even if we could. We object particularly on this ground. To that system which claims for itself the name of orthodoxy and which is now industriously propagated through our country, this system indeed takes various shapes, but in all it casts dishonor on the Creator. According to its old and genuine form, it teaches that God brings us into life wholly depraved, so that under the innocent features of our childhood is hidden a nature averse to all good and disposed to all evil a nature which makes us liable to God's displeasure and wrath, even before we have acquired power to understand our duties or to reflect upon our actions. According to a more modern exposition, it teaches that we came from the hands of our Maker with such a constitution and are placed under such influences and circumstances as to render certain and infallible the total depravity of every human being from the first moment of his moral agency. And it also teaches that the offense of the child who brings into life this ceaseless tendency to unmingled crime makes him liable to the sentence of everlasting damnation. Now, according to the plainest principles of morality, we maintain that a natural constitution of the mind, unfailingly disposing it to evil and to evil alone, would absolve it from guilt. That to give existence under this condition would reveal one's unspeakable cruelty, and that to punish the sin of this unhappily constituted child with endless ruin would be a wrong unparalleled by the most merciless dictatorship. This system also teaches that God selects from this corrupt mass a number to be saved and plucks them by a special influence from the common ruin. That the rest of the human race, though left without that special grace which their conversion requires, are commanded to repent under penalty of aggravated woe, and that forgiveness is promised them on terms which their very constitution infallibly disposes them to reject, and in rejecting which they terribly enhance the punishments of hell. These offers of forgiveness and exhortations to change for the better to beings born under a blighting curse fill our minds with a horror which we lack words to express. That this religious system does not produce all the effects on character which might be anticipated, we most joyfully admit. It is often, very often, counteracted by nature, conscience, common sense by the general quality of Scripture, by the mild example and precepts of Christ, and by the many positive declarations of God's universal kindness and perfect justice. But still, we think that we see its unhappy influence. It tends to discourage the timid, to give excuses to the bad, to feed the vanity of the fanatical, and to offer shelter to the bad feelings of the wicked. By shocking, as it does, the fundamental principles of morality, and by exhibiting a severe and biased deity, it tends strongly to pervert the human ability to tell right from wrong, to form a gloomy, forbidding, and servile religion, and to lead us to substitute harsh criticism, bitterness, and persecution for a tender and impartial love. We think, too, that this system which begins with degrading human nature may be expected to end in pride, for pride grows out of a consciousness of high distinctions, however obtained, and no distinction is so great as that which is made between the chosen and the abandoned of God. The false and dishonorable views of God which have now been stated, we feel ourselves bound to resist unceasingly. Other errors we can pass over with comparative indifference, but we ask our opponents to leave to us a God worthy of our love and trust, in whom our moral feelings may delight, in whom our weaknesses and sorrows may find refuge. We cling to the divine perfections. We meet them everywhere in creation. We read them in the scriptures. We see a lovely image of them in Jesus Christ. And gratitude love and veneration call on us to assert them. Criticized as we often are by others, it is our consolation and happiness that one of our chief offenses is the zeal with which we vindicate the dishonored goodness and righteousness of God. When the Tranties podcast returns, what about a Calvinistic doctrine of the atonement? Atonement Having thus spoken of the unity of God, of the unity of Jesus and his inferiority to God, and of the perfections of the divine character, I now proceed to give our views of the mediation of Christ and of the purposes of his mission. With regard to the great goal which Jesus came to accomplish, there seems to be no possibility of mistake. We believe that he was sent by the Father to effect a moral or spiritual deliverance of humankind. That is, to rescue us from sin and its consequences, and to bring us to a state of everlasting purity and happiness. We believe, too, that he accomplishes this sublime purpose by a variety of methods, by his instructions respecting God's unity, parental character, and moral government, which are admirably fitted to reclaim the world from idolatry and impiety to the knowledge, love, and obedience of the Creator. By His promises of pardon to the penitent and of divine assistance to those who labour for progress in moral excellence; by the light which He has thrown on the path of duty; by His own spotless example, in which the loveliness and sublimity of virtue shine forth to warm and enliven as well as guide us to perfection; by His threatenings against incorrigible guilt; by His glorious revelations concerning immortality by his sufferings and death, by that uniquely important event, the resurrection, which powerfully bore witness to his divine mission and brought down to our senses of future life, by his continual intercession, which obtains for us spiritual aid and blessings, and by the power with which he is invested of raising the dead, judging the world, and conferring the everlasting rewards promised to the faithful. We have no desire to conceal the fact that a difference of opinion exists among us in regard to an interesting part of Christ's mediation, I mean in regard to the precise influence of his death on our forgiveness. Many suppose that this event contributes to our pardon as it was a principal means of confirming his religion and of giving it a power over the mind In other words, that it procures forgiveness by leading to that repentance and virtue which is the great and only condition on which forgiveness is bestowed. Many of us are dissatisfied with this explanation and think that the scriptures ascribe the remission of sins to Christ's death with an emphasis so unique that we ought to consider this event as having a special influence in removing punishment though the scriptures may not reveal the way in which it contributes to this end. Whilst, however, we differ in explaining the connection between Christ's death and human forgiveness, a connection which we all gratefully acknowledge, we agree in rejecting many popular views about his mediation The idea which is conveyed to ordinary minds by the popular theological system that Christ's death has an influence in making God willing to forgive or merciful in awakening his kindness towards us, we strongly reject. We're happy to find that this very dishonorable notion is disowned by intelligent Trinitarian Christians. We remember, however, that Not long ago, it was common to hear of Christ as having died to appease God's wrath, to pay the debt of sinners to his inflexible justice. And we have a strong persuasion that the language of popular religious books and the common way of stating the doctrine of Christ's mediation still communicate very degrading views of God's character. They give to multitudes the impression that the death of Jesus produces a change in the mind of God towards us and that in this its efficacy chiefly consists. No error seems to us more pernicious. We can tolerate no variation in the pure goodness of God. We earnestly maintain that Jesus, instead of calling forth in any way or degree the mercy of the Father, was sent by that mercy to be our Savior. That He is nothing to the human race, but what He is by God's appointment. That He gives us nothing but what God empowers Him to bestow. That our Father in heaven is originally, essentially, and eternally merciful and disposed to forgive. That His unborrowed, underived, and unchangeable love is the only fountain of what flows to us through His Son. We believe that Jesus is dishonored, not glorified, by ascribing to Him an influence which clouds the splendor of divine benevolence. We also agree in rejecting, as unscriptural and absurd, the explanation given by the popular system of the manner in which Christ's death procures our forgiveness. The system used to teach as its fundamental principle that we, having sinned against an infinite being, have contracted infinite guilt, and are consequently deserving of an infinite penalty. We believe, however, that this reasoning if reasoning it may be called, which overlooks the obvious principle that the guilt of a being must be proportioned to his nature and powers, has fallen into disuse. Still, the system teaches that sin, of whatever degree, requires endless punishment, and that the whole human race, being infallibly involved by their nature in sin, owe this terrible penalty to the justice of their Creator. It teaches that this penalty cannot be remitted consistent with the honor of the divine law unless a substitute be found to endure it or to suffer an equivalent. It also teaches that, from the nature of the case, no substitute is adequate to this work except the infinite God himself, and accordingly, God, in his second person, took on him human nature that he might pay to his own justice the debt of punishment we have incurred, and might thus reconcile forgiveness with the claims and threatenings of his law. Such is the prevalent system. Now to us this doctrine seems to show strong marks of absurdity, and we maintain that Christianity ought not to be encumbered with it unless it be laid down in the New Testament fully and expressly. We ask our adversaries then to point to some clear passage where it is taught. We ask for one text in which we are told that God took human nature, that he might make an infinite satisfaction to his own justice. For one text which tells us that human guilt requires an infinite substitute, that Christ's sufferings owe their efficacy to their being born by an infinite being or that the divine nature gives infinite value to the sufferings of the human nature. Not one word of this description can we find in the scriptures, not a text which even hints at these strange doctrines. They are, altogether, we believe, the fictions of theologians. Christianity is in no degree responsible for them. We are astonished at their prevalence. What can be plainer than that God cannot in any sense be a sufferer or bear a penalty in place of his creatures? How dishonorable to him is the supposition that his justice is so severe as to exact infinite punishment for the sins of frail and feeble humans. And yet his justice is so easy and yielding as to accept the limited pains of Christ's human soul as a full equivalent For the endless woes due from the world. How clear is it also, according to this doctrine, that God, instead of being abundant in forgiveness, never forgives? For it seems absurd to speak of people as forgiven when their whole punishment, or an equivalent to it, is borne by a substitute. A scheme more fitted to obscure the brightness of Christianity and the mercy of God or less suited to give comfort to a guilty and troubled mind could not, we think, be easily constructed. We believe, too, that this system is unfavorable to one's character. It naturally leads one to think that Christ came to change God's mind rather than one's own. That the highest object of his mission was to avert punishment rather than to bestow holiness, and that a large part of religion consists in disparaging good works and human virtue for the purpose of magnifying the value of Christ's vicarious sufferings. In this way, a sense of the infinite importance and indispensable necessity of personal improvement is weakened, and high-sounding praises of Christ's cross seem often to be substituted for obedience to his precepts. This is not what we have learned about Jesus. Whilst we gratefully acknowledge that he came to rescue us from punishment, we believe that he was sent on an even nobler mission, namely to deliver us from sin itself and to form in us a sublime and heavenly virtue. We regard him as a Savior, mainly as he is the light, physician, and guide of the dark, diseased, and wandering mind. No influence in the universe seems to us so glorious as His over human character, and no redemption so worthy of thankfulness as the restoration of the soul to purity. Without this, pardon, were it possible, would be of little value. Why pluck the sinner from hell if a hell be left to burn in his own heart? Why raise him to heaven if he should remain a stranger to its holiness and love? With these impressions, we are accustomed to value the gospel foremost as it abounds in effective aids, motives, and inducements to a generous and divine virtue. In this virtue, as in a common center, we see all its doctrines, precepts, and promises meet. And we believe that faith in this religion is of no worth and contributes nothing to salvation any farther than as it uses these doctrines, precepts, promises, and the whole life, character, sufferings, and triumphs of Jesus as the means of purifying the mind, of changing it into the likeness of his celestial excellence. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing says more on the topic of Christian virtue or true holiness. Having thus stated our views of the highest purpose of Christ's mission, that it is our recovery to virtue or holiness, I shall now, finally, give our views on the nature of Christian virtue or true holiness. We believe that all virtue has its foundation in the moral nature of human beings, that is, in conscience or our sense of duty and in our power of forming our character and life according to conscience. We believe that these moral powers are the grounds of responsibility and the highest distinctions of human nature, and that no act is praiseworthy any farther than it springs from their exertion. We believe that no dispositions infused into us without our own moral activity are of the nature of virtue, and therefore we reject the doctrine of irresistible divine influence on the human mind, molding it into goodness as marble is hewn into a statue. Such goodness, if this word may be used, would not be a fitting object of moral approval, any more than the instinctive affections of inferior animals or the constitutional friendliness of human beings. By these remarks, we do not mean to deny the importance of God's aid or spirit, but by his spirit, we mean a moral, illuminating, and persuasive influence, not physical, not compulsory, not necessitating virtue. We object strongly to the idea of many Christians about our powerlessness and God's irresistible agency on the heart, believing that they undermine our responsibility and the laws of our moral nature. And they make us machines, that they make God blameworthy for all evil deeds, that they discourage good minds and inflate the fanatical with wild imaginations of immediate and sensible inspiration. Among the virtues, we give the first place to the love of God. We believe that this principle is the true purpose and happiness of our being, that we were made for union with our Creator, that His infinite perfection is the only sufficient object and true resting place for the insatiable desires and unlimited capacities of the human mind, and that without Him our noblest feelings, admiration, veneration, hope, and love would wither and decay. We believe, too, that the love of God is not only essential to happiness, but to the strength and perfection of all the virtues, that conscience, without the sanction of God's authority and retributive justice, would be a weak director, that benevolence, unless nourished by communion with His goodness and encouraged by His smile, could not thrive amidst the selfishness and thanklessness of the world. And that self-government, without a sense of divine oversight, would hardly extend beyond an outward and partial purity. God, as He is essentially goodness, holiness, justice, and virtue, so He is the life, motive, and sustainer of virtue in the human soul. But whilst we earnestly instill the love of God, We believe that great care is necessary to distinguish it from counterfeits. We think that much which is called piety is worthless. Many have fallen into the error that there can be no excess of feelings which have God for their object, and distrusting as coldness that self-control without which virtue and devotion lose all their dignity, they have abandoned themselves to extravagances which have brought about contempt on piety. Most certainly, if the love of God be that which often bears that name, the less we have of it, the better. If religion be the shipwreck of understanding, we cannot keep too far from it. On this subject, we always speak plainly. We cannot sacrifice our reason to the reputation of zeal. We owe it to truth and religion to maintain that fanaticism, partial insanity, sudden impressions, and ungovernable strong emotional experiences are anything but piety. We believe that the true love of God is a moral feeling founded on a clear perception and consisting in a high esteem and veneration of His moral perfections. Thus, it perfectly coincides and is in fact the same thing as the love of virtue, righteousness, and goodness. You will easily discern, then, what we esteem as the surest and only decisive signs of piety. We lay no stress on strong excitements. For us, a person is pious if and only if they conform their actions to God's moral perfections and government, who shows their delight in God's benevolence by loving and serving their neighbor, someone who shows their delight in God's justice by being resolutely upright, their sense of God's purity by regulating their thoughts, emotions, and desires, and whose conversation, business, and home life are governed by a respect for God's presence and authority. In all other things we may deceive ourselves. Disordered nerves may give us strange sights and sounds and impressions. Texts of scripture may come to us as from heaven. Our whole souls may be moved and our confidence in God's favor be undoubting. But in all this, there is no religion. The question is, do we love God's commands in which his character is fully expressed? And do we give up to these our habits and passions? Without this, ecstasy is a mockery. One surrender of desire to God's will is worth a thousand strong emotional experiences. We do not judge of the bent of people's minds by their strong emotional experiences, any more than we judge of the natural direction of a tree during a storm. Instead, we're suspicious of loud professions of faith, for we observe that deep feeling is generally noiseless and least seeks display. We would not, by these remarks, be understood as wishing to exclude from religion warmth and even strong emotional experiences, we honor and highly value true religious sensitivity. We believe that Christianity is intended to act powerfully on our whole nature, on the heart as well as the understanding and the conscience. We think of heaven as a state where the love of God will be exalted into an unbounded fervor and joy, and we desire in our pilgrimage here to drink into the spirit of that better world. But we think that religious feelings are only to be valued if they spring naturally from an improved character, when they come unforced, when they are the reward of obedience, when they are the feeling of a mind which understands God by being like Him, and when, instead of disturbing, they lift up the understanding, invigorate conscience, give a pleasure to common duties, and are seen to exist in connection with cheerfulness prudence, and a reasonable frame of mind. When we observe an intense experience called religious in people whose general character expresses little refinement and elevation and whose piety seems at war with reason, we pay it little respect. We honor religion too much to give its sacred name to a feverish, forced, fluctuating zeal which has little power over one's life. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing continues to discourse on Christian virtue and specifically on the love of Christ. And he also discusses how a, quote, zeal for truth can turn sour. branch of virtue we believe to be love to Christ the greatness of the work of Jesus the spirit with which he executed it and the sufferings which he bore for our salvation we feel to be strong claims on our gratitude and veneration we see in nature no beauty to be compared with the loveliness of his character nor do we find on earth a benefactor to whom we owe an equal debt We read his history with delight and learn from it the perfection of our nature. We are particularly touched by his death, which was endured for our redemption, and by that strength of love which triumphed over his pains. His resurrection is the foundation of our hope of immortality. His intercession gives us boldness to draw near to the throne of grace, and we look up to heaven with new desire when we think that if we follow him here, we shall there see his kind and gracious face and enjoy his friendship forever. I need not express to you our views on the subject of the virtues which have to do with benefiting others. We attach such importance to these that we are sometimes criticized for exalting them above piety. We regard the spirit of love, charity, meekness, forgiveness, generosity, and kindness as the badge and distinction of Christians, as the brightest image we can bear of God, as the best proof of piety. On this subject I need not and cannot carry on at length, but there is one branch of goodness towards others which I ought not to pass over in silence because we think that we think of it more highly and correctly than many of our brethren. I refer to the duty of fairness, charitable judgment, especially towards those who differ in religious opinion. We think that in nothing have Christians so widely departed in their religion as in this area. We read with astonishment and horror the history of the church, and sometimes when we look back on the fires of persecution and on the zeal of Christians in building up walls of separation and giving up one another to eternal damnation… We feel as if we were reading the records of a hellish rather than a heavenly kingdom. An enemy to every religion, if asked to describe a Christian, would, with some show of reason, depict him as an idolater of his own particular opinions, fully devoted to his own faction, shutting his eyes to the virtues and his ears to the arguments of his opponents presumptuously claiming that all excellence is to be found in his own sect and all saving power is to be found in his own creed, sheltering the love of domination under the name of pious zeal, the proud imagination of infallibility and the spirit of intolerance and trampling on people's rights under the pretense of saving their souls. We can hardly think of a plainer obligation on beings of our frail and fallible nature who are instructed in the duty of fair judgment than to abstain from condemning people of apparent conscientiousness and sincerity who are chargeable with no crime but that of differing from us in the interpretation of the scriptures, and differing too on topics of great and acknowledged obscurity." We are astonished at the impudence of those who, with Christ's warning sounding in their ears, take on them the responsibility of making creeds for his church and casting out those who profess Christian faith and who lead virtuous lives on account of imagined errors for being guilty of thinking for themselves. We know that, quote, zeal for truth is the cover for this usurpation of Christ's prerogative. But we think that zeal for truth, as it is called, is very suspicious, except in those whose abilities and favorable circumstances, whose patient deliberation, and whose improvements in humility, mildness, and fairness give them a right to hope that their views are more correct than those of their neighbors. Much of what passes for a zeal for truth we look upon with little respect For it often appears to grow the biggest, where other virtues shoot up thinly and feebly. We have no gratitude for those reformers who would force upon us a doctrine which has not improved their own temperaments or made them better people than their neighbors. (coughs) Luther! (coughs) Calvin! (coughs) Excuse me. Had a little coughing fit there. We are accustomed to think much of the difficulties of religious inquiries. Difficulties springing from the slow development of our minds, from the power of early impressions, from the state of society, from human authority, from the general neglect of our reasoning powers, from the lack of proper principles of interpretation and of important helps in interpreting Scripture, and from various other causes— We find that on no subject have people, and even good ones, engrafted so many strange opinions, wild theories, and imagined fictions as on religion. And remembering as we do that we ourselves are sharers of the common frailty, we dare not assume infallibility in our treatment of our fellow Christians or encourage in common Christians who have little time for investigation the habit of denouncing and condemning other denominations perhaps more enlightened and virtuous than their own. Love, patience, a delight in the virtues of various Christian groups, a reluctance to criticize and condemn, these are virtues which, however poorly practiced by us, we admire and recommend, and we would rather join ourselves to the church in which they abound than to any other denomination, however elated with the belief of its own orthodoxy, however strict in guarding its creed, However, burning with zeal against imagined error. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the conclusion to Channing's sermon. I have thus given the distinctive views of those Christians in whose name I have spoken, that is to say, Unitarian Christians. We have embraced this system, not hastily or lightly, but after much deliberation, and we hold to it tightly, not merely because we believe it to be true, but also because we regard it as purifying truth, as a doctrine according to godliness, as able to work mightily and to bring forth fruit in them who believe that we wish to spread it, we have no desire to conceal. But we think that we wish it to spread because we regard it as more friendly to practical piety and pure morals than the opposite doctrines, because it gives clearer and nobler views of duty and stronger motives to its performance, because it recommends religion at once to the understanding and to the heart, because it asserts the lovely and venerable attributes of God because it tends to restore the benevolent spirit of Jesus to his divided and afflicted church, and because it cuts off every hope of God's favor except that which springs from practical conformity to the life and precepts of Christ. We see nothing in our views to give offense except their purity, and it is their purity which makes us seek and hope for their spreading through the world. My friend and brother Jared Sparks, you are this day to take upon you important duties, to be clothed with an office which the Son of God did not disdain, to devote yourself to that religion which His holiest lips have preached and His most precious blood sealed. We trust that you will bring to this work a willing mind, a firm purpose, a martyr's spirit, a readiness to toil and suffer for the truth a devotion of your best powers to the interests of piety and virtue. I have spoken of the doctrines which you will probably preach, but I do not mean that you are to give yourself to public disputes. You will remember that good practice is the goal of preaching and will labor to make your people holy livers rather than skillful disputants. Be careful, lest the desire of defending what you deem truth and of repelling criticism and misrepresentation turn you aside from your main job, which is to fix in our minds a living conviction of the obligation, sublimity, and happiness of Christian virtue. The best way to vindicate your views is to show, in your preaching and life, their intimate connection with Christian morals, with a high and delicate sense of duty, with fairness towards your opposers with inflexible integrity, and with an habitual reverence for God. If any light can pierce and scatter the clouds of prejudice, it is that of a pure example. My brother, may your life preach more loudly than your lips. Be to this people a pattern of all good works, and may your instructions derive authority from a well-grounded belief in your hearers that you speak from the heart, that you preach from experience, that the truth which you distribute has worked powerfully in your own heart, that God and Jesus and heaven are not merely words on your lips, but most affecting realities to your mind and springs of hope and consolation and strength in all your trials. Thus laboring, may you reap abundantly and have a testimony of your faithfulness not only in your own conscience— but in the esteem, love, virtues, and improvements of your people. To all who hear me, I would say with the Apostle Paul, test all things, hold fast that which is good. Do not, brethren, shrink from the duty of searching God's word for yourself because of fear of human rebuke and denunciation. Do not think that you may innocently follow the opinions which prevail around you without investigation because Christianity is now so purified from errors as to need no laborious research. There is much reason to believe that Christianity is, at this moment, dishonored by large and yet cherished corruptions if you remember the darkness which hung over the gospel for ages, if you consider the impure union which still exists in almost every Christian country between the church and the state, and which recruits human selfishness and ambition on the side of established error, if you remember in what degree the spirit of intolerance has stifled free inquiry, not only before, but since the Reformation, you will see that Christianity cannot have already freed itself from all the human inventions which disfigured it under the papal tyranny. No, much stubble is yet to be burnt. Much rubbish is to be removed. Many gaudy decorations which, in poor taste, have been hung around Christianity must be swept away. And the earth-born fogs which have long shrouded it must be scattered before the divine building will rise before us in its natural and awe-inspiring majesty, in its harmonious proportions, in its pleasing and celestial splendors. This glorious reformation in the Church, we hope, under God's blessing, from the progress of the human intellect, from the moral progress of society, from the consequent decline of prejudice and bigotry, And, though last not least, from the subversion of human authority in matters of religion, from the fall of those hierarchies and other human institutions by which the minds of individuals are oppressed under the weight of numbers, and a papal domination is perpetuated in the Protestant Church. Our earnest prayer to God is that he will overturn and overturn and overturn the strongholds of spiritual usurpation until he shall come whose right it is to rule our minds, that the conspiracy of ages against the liberty of Christians may be brought to an end, that the servile assent so long yielded to human creeds may give place to honest and devout inquiry into the scriptures, and that Christianity, thus purified from error, may put forth its almighty energy and prove itself by its ennobling influence on the mind to be indeed the power of God unto salvation. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, I'll interact some with this very interesting sermon that we've just heard in two parts. When we come to present day, Unitarian Christians, what does this sermon have to teach us? And are there things here with which we should disagree? This week's Thinking Music has been the track Chalk One Up by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.